Thank you, Pastor Nathan. Uh, thank you for that prayer. I hope uh, that you have uh, already started to have a great day in the Lord. Uh, I'm glad to see all of you this morning. Glad that you are here. Uh, and yes, uh, verse 7 of 1 Kings 17 is certainly a suspenseful one, uh, leaving you on the cliff, as it were, not knowing what's going to happen next unless you've uh, really familiar size, familiarized yourself with uh, these scriptures. And I want you to stay in that suspense a little bit, uh, and I want to build up to it, see God's truth before and after, as we have been making our way through the books of First and Second Kings, which uh, I hope by now, we are. this is part number 13, I hope by now you've uh, been able to see just that uh, books like these especially are not just books which uh, transfer history to us. Yes, they do that, but they also reveal uh, a lot about who our God is. And in fact, I think you cannot turn to a page of Scripture in which God isn't disclosing something about who he is and about what he's like and about what he is after. And I think especially in this section that I want to cover this morning, which will take us from verse 29 of chapter 16 all the way down through verse 16 of chapter 17, is uh, one of the most revealing passages of Scripture I think that I have uh, been able to examine in recent memory. Uh, and it's interesting, too, because this is that story. So you, you are likely familiar with this passage. Uh, maybe perhaps you spent some time in Sunday school when you were younger and you remember the old flannel graph stories and you have Elijah sitting by the brook being fed by ravens and it's an amazing story it's an amazing account of God's provision but I think there's a lot more going on in this scene uh, than first meets the eye so that's what I want to draw out this morning but as you're there I think also uh, what I think this moment is sort of Picturing, if you will, is I think one of the most prevailing themes of Scripture itself, which is just that God seems to, throughout human history, especially in Bible history, seems to have sort of an utter disregard for seemingly impossible situations. Where, where something seems like it can't happen, God sort of just kind of snickers and laughs and he says, watch what I can do. <laughs> He, he, I think, relishes, he demonstrates in those moments just his, his utter sort of love for stacking the odds against himself. I, I think God does this a lot. There's a, we could go to just passage after passage where God just relishes to work in small things and fragile people and weak people and foolish people and people that would otherwise be uh, so ostracized and outcast from the world. God delights to work in those sorts of people, the weak and the foolish and the, and the small and the fragile it, it kind of reminds me what Paul later says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember where he says uh, he, he loves to work through the foolishness of the world so that, uh, that no flesh can glory in his presence. And this is sort of, I think, the overarching narrative of Scripture. He works through people that we would otherwise think uh, this cannot happen. It's impossible. And I think there's no better example of this, actually, than in these this section for at the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17 of 1 Kings, which I think show us this providence of God that is, is completely untroubled by the impossible. He, he's completely undeterred by the, uh, situations that are so improbable. He kind of laughs at that, I think. 
I want to show you uh, just what I mean by that. By walking through this passage, verse 29 of chapter 16. uh, And we're going to see three important truths that I want to bring out uh, from this passage. And the first of this is, number one, our defense is always ready. Our defense is always ready. Look at verse 29. And in the 30 and 8th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 20 and 2 years. Interestingly enough, that last little note at the end of verse 29 is about the only positive thing you could ever say about King Ahab. He actually has a a seemingly politically stable throne. He reigns for 22 years. No civil wars, no uprisings, no seeming uh, gross scandals of note that would seem to get him out of the way, out of the way of power. He is a, he's for all intents and purposes, a very stable king, at least politically. But everything else about Ahab is appalling, to say the least. And the historian, it makes sure we know that right off the bat. He reigns 20 and 2 years, verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. <laughs> maybe if you've, if you've been keeping note, maybe that little description, that little uh, sort of inside uh, note about who Ahab really was, uh, this idea that he's more evil than everyone before him, maybe that note kind of seems like a worn out joke at this point. <laughs> Because if you go back to chapter 14, verse 9, and chapter 14, verse 22, and chapter 16, verse 25, the historian has said the same exact thing about all the kings in recent memory. <laughs> this guy is the worst than anyone before him. And then the next guy comes up and he's the worst than anyone else before him. <laughs> and by this time, I think it almost feels like I think you're being a little bit exaggerating with this. But the historian says no. <laughs> Watch, look, look at how evil he was. And I think he's almost anticipating that response, this idea that we would kind of like snicker at the idea that this guy is worse after you've said it three times. Almost like the boy who cried wolf. Look at verse 31. The historian says, and it came to pass as if it had been a light thing. It was easy for Ahab to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took the wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. (laughs) He summarizes every seemingly detestable thing that Ahab could have ever done or accomplished, which sort of goes back to his thesis, his his idea, his notion that he's the worst one out of all of them before him. And he says, basically, let me prove it to you. Let me show you all of these things he is bringing in to the land of promise. Remember, this is Israel. This is God's chosen people. And what is he bringing in? Irreligion. Idolatry. He's not just inviting paganism to have its place. He's investing and he's integrating paganism within Israelite culture. 
He's, he's uh, seen here making or uh, marrying Jezebel, who you likely will be familiar with if you're familiar with 1 Kings 18 and 19. She has a, a very notorious record to her name. She'll figure prominently in weeks to come. Well, what else does Jezebel bring with her other than this just untamable enthusiasm for worshiping Baal, for worshiping false gods? And here we see Ahab not just entertaining the idea of other gods. We see him in two verses, verses 31 and 32, serving and worshiping and constructing places for worship for this false god. Complete investment into this false worship. Of course, these are just outright renunciations of God's word. It's almost like the kid who doesn't want to hear what you have to say, plugging his ears and pretending he can't hear you. This is Ahab. I'm plugging my ears to what God's word says, and I am doing my own thing. Strictly for doing things that are strictly prohibited by the word of the Lord elsewhere we could turn to. But to further evidence this, I want you to note this. This is fascinating. Because it's not just bringing in Baal, uh, idols for Baal and houses for Baal and worshippers for Baal and all those sorts of things. And all of the immorality that goes along with that. Notice verse 34. Because this is a really curious verse. In his days... That is, in Ahab's days, did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. And he laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, this is really fascinating. To further evidence, to further prove the fact that Ahab is doing everything contrary to the word of the Lord. He notes, the historian notes how Ahab set about to rebuild all of the old ruins of Jericho. Remember Joshua 6, they have the the army of Israel marches around Jericho. And on the last day they march seven times and scream and shout and blow their trumpets. And Jericho falls. But... Perhaps you may not remember this. Let me just read this to you. You can, if you want to go there, you can. It's in Joshua chapter 6. At the end of that whole scene, that whole skirmish, Joshua lays down a curse on anyone who would build and rebuild all of these old fortresses at Jericho. Notice Joshua 6.26. And Joshua adjured them at that time, judged them, saying, Cursed be the man... Before the Lord, before Yahweh, that riseth up and buildeth this city, Jericho, he shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. It's a direct uh, sort of realization of what Joshua has just declared. That at the cost of the oldest and the youngest sons, That's the cost for rebuilding these ruins. That's the curse. It's a direct disobedient action against God's words for his people. Again, this this is the whole thing that I think these verses are showing us. There is a complete disdain for the word of God by Ahab in Israel at this point. It's considered as next to nothing. What does it matter what Jehovah says? We listen to Baal now. We can do whatever we please. (laughs) 
Such is what precipitates this descent into ungodliness and this embrace into paganism and immorality and unrighteousness and everything else that we might say that is opposed to the God of Israel. And I think that's why that phrase at the beginning of verse 31 is so impactful when you have all of this weight behind it. It was an easy thing for Ahab. It was a light thing. It was a trifling thing for him to follow in the footsteps of Jeroboam. Who, if you remember, hopefully you do, is the guy who's sort of the paradigm for evil kings. We've noted already how the the effects of Jeroboam's uh, sins will be felt for the next two centuries. And here the historian is making a remarkable statement that this guy, it's easy for him to follow in that path. (laughs) The evilness of his heart. His disregard for God's truth and God's word. And yet into the midst of all of that. That that disdain for God's truth and holiness and righteousness and all those things. In the midst of all of this iniquity. This bringing in of Baal worship. This reconstructing of Jericho. All of this, this total antipathy towards the things of God. Suddenly God's word appears. I should say, God's word is suddenly broadcast. Because notice verse 1 of chapter 17. And remember, just as a side note, sidebar, uh, your your chapter divisions are not uh, inspired. And I think uh, this is one of those moments where we ought to and we must, I would say, read these together. Because in the midst of all this disregard for the things of the words of God comes the word of God through the mouth of Elijah. Suddenly, without warning, without notice. Notice, he's doing all these evil things and Elijah the Tishbite, who was a man of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, therefore, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. It's a remarkable scene, is it not? This is also another sort of sidebar. This is a weird introduction. We have no uh, sort of clues as to who Elisha is, or not Elisha, Elijah, who he is, other than the fact that he's this Tishbite from Gilead. But we get no backstory, we get no nativity scene. <clears throat> There's no lengthy chapter where it talks about his miraculous calling, how Yahweh visited him. This, how Yahweh you know, met a young Elijah on the road and, and, and then he surrendered his life to divine service. There's, there's no uh, moment like 1 Samuel 3 where Yahweh is calling out to him in the night to serve him. And then he says, here I am. It's just suddenly Elijah is there speaking in the power of Jehovah. No less to a king who had totally had no consideration for the things of Jehovah. This is almost, this Mark, if you know, the Gospel of Mark is my favorite, probably book of the Bible. It's one of my favorites and we went through it uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, if you remember Mark chapter 1, there's a very strange way that Mark introduces that Gospel. It is almost like this. Suddenly, God, Jesus is here. He doesn't give a nativity. He doesn't give a backstory. It's just, bam, suddenly Jesus is on the scene. And in in a very similar way, this is what the historian is doing here with Elijah. Bam, suddenly he is here speaking in the power of the word of God. 
because the details we're given are kind of vague. And then this message that he has is also incredible. Notice he says to Ahab, remember Ahab, the one who is inviting Baal in, who is integrating Baal worship into uh, Israelite culture. He's investing in that movement. And what does Elijah say to him? As the Lord God of Israel liveth, Before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Again, you have to understand uh, what he's saying in its proper light. Because this was not just a harsh word of judgment from a preacher to a king who had sort of failed to hear God's words. Which it is that. You can go to Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 28 and hear how if the king disregards God's word, there would be famine. There would be judgment. There would be repercussions. But it's also interesting to know exactly what that repercussion was in light of what Ahab was inviting. Again, he's inviting Baal into this life and culture. Baal was a fertility god. A deity who supposedly poured forth blessings in all matters of fertility. And and part of what that meant was his ability to fertilize the earth with rain. (laughs) So you see what he's actually saying? He's repudiating both Ahab and their God in one single sentence. (laughs) You have no authority and your God has no authority. In one fell swoop, he's totally decimating Ahab's ability to rule and their new God that they've welcomed into their midst. (laughs) Imagine the faces of Ahab's court when this sort of like unknown, no-name prophet sneaks into the room and starts preaching both against your king and your God. A startling, stunning scene, which I think surely... Surely indicates God's affinity for the unexpected. God loves working through obscure and unexpected means to accomplish his purposes. And here you have this audacious non-Israelite preacher coming in the name of the God of Israel and pronouncing judgment on the people of Israel in the face of the king of Israel himself. It's a startling moment with this unlikely voice of Elijah coming and declaring the strength of Yahweh over his people. You have no authority. Your God has no ability to control nature. You pray to him and you're praying to four walls. Actually, as Elijah is here saying, I come in the power of the one who can control everything. And it's almost as if the sort of through line, the sort of reading between the lines of this particular moment, it's almost as if God is saying, everything happens according to my word. You notice that's what Elijah says? But according to my word. That's the knife that cuts at the heart of this king who had disregarded God's word. That actually life and history and everything operates according to that word. Because that's the only authoritative word. That's the only word that holds sway over the ages and over the times and over the places and over the peoples. It's this authoritative word of Jehovah alone. 
Think about other people in the nation of Israel. I imagine not everyone was super happy when Ahab came to the throne. Think about what they're seeing. I imagine I think of perhaps an elderly faithful Israelite who's clinging to the promises of Jehovah. And he's seeing uh, sort of evil after evil after evil. And suddenly Elijah appears. I think there's evidence here that God is never caught napping. (laughs) Even as evil is seemingly winning, it's coming in, it's, it's taking over, it's taking over Israel life and culture and everything. Everything is being swayed and turned over to something that is false and and deteriorating and something that is devastating to God. And into the midst of all of that turning away from him, there he comes. He's not caught off guard by the the, the sway and the move of evil. His defense of his word and his people is already ready. His defense is always ready. Because he is the one who is sovereign over the keeping of his people and the preserving of his word and the upholding of his righteousness. And he's the one who makes a way where there is no way. This moment of Elijah's appearance is a startling, sudden, surprising move. Because into the midst of all of this, going towards things opposite of God, comes the presence of God through the mouth of Elijah. What a moment. And to think, we don't know how God worked through Elijah. We don't know how he was prepared We don't know how he was moved to this moment where he had to burst forth with this message. Even now, in our day, I would say too, that God is preparing the defenses for his word. We may not see it. We may not know it. We may not be able to perceive it so visually and so perceptibly. perceptibly, But you can be sure that God is defending his truth, his word, his people. He's always working that for for his own, for his sons, for his daughters. It'll come when we least and where we least expect it. From, in this case, it was a non-Israelite preacher. God's defense is always ready. Number two, notice, our strength is always provided. Our defense is always ready. Our strength is always provided. Notice verse two, because without any additional detail, again, this is why I, I think that there's some linkage here between this and this particular passage in the book of Mark. Because remember in Mark, it was always immediately, and we were thrust into this scene and this scene and this scene. It was almost like getting all these highlights. And immediately, without any sort of transitionary way of like moving into the next moment, Elijah's preaching, and bam, the word of the Lord, verse 2, came unto him saying, Get thee hence. Hide. Turn thee to eastward and hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is, before Jordan. And he does so. Again, look at verse 4. And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook And I've commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. So he obeys again according to God's words. For he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning. And bread and flesh in the evening. And he drank 
from the brook. It's a really fascinating moment. He obeys. He abides in a, a wilderness, if you will. An undisclosed, for an undisclosed length of time. Where his only resources for be, staying alive are this small trickling stream that's an offshoot of the Jordan River and food via ravens. <laughs> and think about this. Elijah had just started his public ministry. He was just out into the forefront. He had only just begun his public witness to the words of Jehovah. And already he's being summoned to the wilderness. And here he's going to learn firsthand. Through firsthand experience. Just what it means that God's word is the only authoritative word. And if you'll permit me, I think what he learns firsthand is what Jesus would later affirm in Matthew 4. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Which, by the way, where did Jesus make that declaration? <laughs> in his own wilderness. <laughs> think about that for a minute. I want to come back to that. Because I think what I want to focus on, though, with this, our strength is always provided. There are some, if you read commentaries and, and different sort of sources, there are some who wish to sort of reasonably explain this particular moment. And they've jumped through linguistics to show that ravens actually can be translated Arabs and that these were actually just passing caravans of Ara- Arabian sort of uh, merchants who were able to sustain Elijah as he was here, which I think is just a bunch of baloney. <laughs> Again, I would say finding some sort of rational reason as to how this occurred in a way that we can comprehend ruins this entire moment. (laughs) There is no reasonable explanation for what happens here. This is a moment of divine interference. This is something that happens when things aren't going sort of the (laughs) they're going against the ways of God. You'll notice that God always intervenes. He interjects himself into the narrative. Whether it be through an angel, through a messenger, through a storm, through something that brings his people to where he wants them to be brought to. And in this case, he's intervening himself through the fact that he's controlling ravens in their flight. The same authority which sustains the universe. Yes, it is the same authority which can control the carnivorous stomachs of ravens. Allowing them to serve as messengers and as, uh, as you, uh, if you will, as uh, like delivery boys for his, his prophet. Here, raven, uh, ravens bring him nourishment. But beyond just that miracle alone, which is, yes, a moment of divine interjection, I think also this scene evidences something else even more mysterious, which is just the fact that this is a very strange strategy for accomplishing God's purposes, don't you think? He has this man, he's declaring things in the word of the Lord, he's speaking up to kings, he's speaking against rulers and principalities, and then he's immediately brought into the wilderness, By himself. You see Elijah. He too was not immune. From those consequences of the judgment. That he has just declared. What does he just declare? Famine in the land. 
There's going to be nothing that will provide sustenance. And famine means crops die, animals die. Everything is going uh, bad. (laughs) Especially in terms of agriculture. And he too is now made to feel that desperation. To where the only thing he can rely on, he's brought to this point of of where the only thing he's allowed to, to trust in are this little trickling stream from Jordan and bread that fell from the claws of ravens. <laughs> he too felt the grief of Israel's rejection of Yahweh. He was brought to a point of suffering where his only ability to get through was to believe in the word of the Lord according unto the words of Jehovah. I think in like manner, did you know, maybe you know this very well, but I'll just say, maybe I'm stating the obvious. Our status as the people of God does not immunize us from suffering. It's not a force field that we have when we say, I believe in Jehovah. It doesn't act as a force field for grief and pain and loss and sorrow and anguish. Any preacher who tells you otherwise, he's not worth his salt. In fact, he's disregarding almost all of the Bible. That God works through suffering. And it's precisely in suffering that we see him clearest. Like Elijah, we feel all the grueling pains of grief. And yet, what are we shown all throughout that? That God's sovereignty is not stunted by suffering. It's actually in our suffering where his sovereignty and his strength is brought out so much more wonderfully, so much more beautifully, so much more palpably. Our strength is sovereignly provided, yes, in the heat of suffering, not in its absence. In, in the middle of life's severest storms, that's where his strength is most desperately called upon. And that's where he relishes to show just how strong he is. That, that old sort of watchword of the Apostle Paul, that when I am weak, then I am strong, is not just a pithy phrase that we throw out to make us feel better. This is the heart of the gospel. Where else do we see suffering happening most clearly, and yet it's also strength being provided? It's in the cross. Jesus is showing us precisely God's sort of motive, the way he works, the way he operates, isn't outside the lanes of suffering as if to show how amazing he is. It's in the midst of suffering to show how supportive and sustaining and sovereign he is in the middle when everything else is discombobulated and being jumbled. There's something that's secure. There's something that's settled. There's something that's firm. This is, I think, something that's easy to say and it's hard to live. Easy to affirm, but way more difficult to put into practice. Life has a way of tearing us down. Bringing us to the brink. Maybe bringing us to our proverbial brooks of Cherith. (laughs) Where we're feeling the effects of famine. I've been reflecting a lot recently 
If you'll permit me to engage in this illustration once again, I've been reflecting a lot about three summers ago when my mom was completely brought low by a severe mental health crisis, if you will. I've been calling it lately the worst summer of my life because in a sense it was. God allowed something unexpected, something unforeseen, something unplanned for. And he shook me and my family to the core, not knowing how to get through. I looked in the face of my mom one afternoon and she didn't even know who I was. I would say in the heat of that, I didn't know I was not strong. I'll just, I was not, I was not very strong. <laughs> and it's only in the aftermath of all of this, as God has worked, as God has moved, as his spirit has infused more and more and more. And yet, when I didn't think it was even possible, even more grace into our family. And in my mom's life especially, it's only now that I can see that his strength is always provided, even when I can't even perceive it. It comes through very unexpected means and comes through very unforeseen events, but his strength is always being provided. This is how God works. He works through heartache, through suffering, and through the things that are deemed the worst of the world to show just how amazing he can work. He can work through ravens. <laughs> it reminds me of Matthew 10. Where Jesus says to his apostles. I care for the lilies of the field. And the ravens. The sparrows that fall to the ground hungry. Do you not think that I care for you? I can even use them to feed one of my servants. <laughs> he delights. In showing us how he can strengthen us through very unexpected sources of strength. And no, maybe that's not going to be for you and me, raven sent groceries. But I also think that what this is meaning to show is that there's no boundaries to God's watch care over his people. There's nothing hemming him in. There's nothing keeping him caged or closed or boxed up. His sovereignty reaches even to where he can flick his finger and a raven will drop bread and flesh for his servant in his time of need. He will stop at nothing to give his children his strength. Guess what? Even if that means if God has to take on flesh and go into the wilderness for us. Which brings me to my last point, which is. Number one, our defense is always ready. Number two, our strength is always provided. And number three, in verses 7 through verse 16, we have our supply is always sure. Our supply is always sure because here, notice, he's just been, the historian has just been commenting on this fact that there's this supply that's being provided to God's servant in a sovereign way. And almost as if to further bolster that idea, he relays another example of that very truth. Look at verse 7. And it came to pass after a little while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. 
And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. Now, there is a, these verses are begging to be unpacked. So let me just do that quickly. Because there's two really strange things going on, especially in verse 9. As here, where Elijah's been camping out, even too, the famine affects that. The brook dries up. There's no more water. He's not sustained. Perhaps the birds migrate elsewhere. No more ravens to give him anything to sustain him. So he's told, get thee to another place. In this case, it's Zarephath. You you see, this is amazing. Zarephath is a Phoenician city. It was known for its metallurgy. In fact, that's literally what that word means in the Hebrew. And it was positioned on the Mediterranean coast, sort of in between Tyre and Sidon. But also, it was in Jezebel's backyard, where she hailed from. Remember, Jezebel is married to Ahab. He is the, her father, Jezebel's daddy, is Ethbaal, king of Zidon. In Phoenicia. So he's calling his prophet to go into Jezebel's backyard. It's almost like when when Elijah hears this command. Get thee to Zarephath. It's almost as if God is saying. Get thee to enemy territory. Not something that seems like it would be successful. If you're trying to stay alive, if you're trying to avoid being imprisoned and avoid having your head cut off, this doesn't feel like the command that we should follow. Get thee to where you can be captured for sure. But also, it's so fascinating to me how God works through unexpected means. Because notice also who he tells him will give him sustenance. None other than a widow woman. He tells them to seek out this widow woman in Zarephath and she will be able to feed you and give you supplies and support and sustenance and nourishment. This is probably the least likely person to have a full pantry. But he tells tells them to seek her out. You see, widows in this day were associated with the very poorest of means and the very scantiest of supplies. And in fact, in the Hebrew, the word widow actually can also be translated as it is elsewhere in the Old Testament, literally desolate places. So his source for sustenance comes from a woman who was familiar with scarcity even before a famine. Who has her residence, place of residence in uh, Jezebel's daddy's backyard. Not a winning scheme. Again, I think what Jehovah is doing to his prophet is bringing him to the fringes of his faith. But notice what happens. He finds her, so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks And he called to her and said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to fetch it, he called to her and said, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. So he calls her and asks her for some food and some water, make me some dinner. And and then she declines. She has to say no. And she indicates that they are scraping the bottom of the barrel, literally. And she said, verse 12, as the Lord thy God liveth. I have not a cake, but a handful of meal and a barrel. 
and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat and die. Her situation is worse than hopeless. She is in a dire state that this famine has brought her to the brink. Nothing is able to support her, she believes. And then Elijah gives this very surprising, albeit soothing word. And it appears at first like an affront. (laughs) She's just told Elijah, she's just confided in him that she's going to go make their last supper. And what does he say? Elijah said to her, verse 13, fear not. Go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me. And after make for thee and for thy son. For thus say the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth the rain upon the earth. (laughs) He insists. Elijah insists to this widow not to provide for her little boy, but instead to make something for him first. Which seems so, how preposterous, how presumptive of you. But then he settles that a little bit by giving her the promise that as as however often she goes to this barrel of meal, it will never be depleted. It will never be exhausted. She can go and go and go to it again, visit it again, get what she needs, and it'll always be ready. It'll always be full. I think that point alone is amazing, but I think also the widow's response is even more amazing because she believes him. Verse 15 is she went and did. She obeys the word of a prophet, uh, of a guy that she doesn't believe in, according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal was wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. God's word is sovereign and he's able to supply whenever and wherever he wants. Our supply is always sure according to the word of the Lord. She obeys this preposterous word. I think that little added phrase again at the end of verse 16 according to the word of the Lord shows us once again what the historian's point was. That Yahweh's words are always stronger, always better. His promises are always true. His defense is always ready. His strength is always provided. And his supply is always sure. Let me just ask you. For however much that those sound true, do you believe that they are true for you? Because those are two different things. You can believe that something is true and it makes sense. But there's a different way in which we believe that these are true for us. Especially when we are in the heat of adversity. You don't have to raise your hands. But how often have you felt like you're in the heat of some horrible situation. And you feel as though God is providing miracles for someone else other than me. (laughs) He's sovereignly working in someone else. He's providing ravens for that guy. But not for me. I'm sure you've perhaps been in those situations. 
And perhaps it's at that moment that you want to, you, you would rather sympathize with the widow. Just leave me alone to die. I don't, I, I can't give you anything. I don't have any more faith. I'm being brought to the brink. Let me tell you, I think it's actually a good thing if you identify with the widow in this story. Because wouldn't you know that centuries later, centuries later, another prophet who had recently spent time in the wilderness makes his way to almost the same region of the ancient world and brings this moment full circle. His name is Jesus, if you didn't catch that little wink. Look at Luke 4. Look at, watch This is amazing. Look at Luke 4. One of the most incredible chapters in Jesus' early ministry. He boldly uh, evidences and declares who he is. He has come, verse 18, to preach the word of the Lord. He's identifying himself as the Messiah from Isaiah 61. He's repeating those words. (laughs) And notice, he references this exact moment. After he's preached, this is, again, post-baptism, public declaration of ministry, post-temptation, which is also his wilderness, and post-preaching. Look at verse 25. Or look at verse 24. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah or Elias. When the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, or Zarephath, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. There were a ton of widows in Israel, and Elijah wasn't sent to those He gave a miracle to a widow woman who was outside of the walls of Israel. Instead of being sent to the people, quote, of the covenant, he was sent to someone who was outside of it. And here Jesus is making a very firm and bold statement that the boundlessness of God's promises are not confined to just the people of his covenant. (laughs) They go outside the walls of that. To Gentiles, you might say. This is what's going to be evident throughout the rest of the New Testament. And he's using this moment as sort of a launching pad to say, my ministry, my whole reason for being, my purpose is to show you that God's promises are true and real and firm and sure. Because of me. That's what he was saying. I'm the Messiah and I'm the one who is here to bring all these things to a reality. And it's so because I am the word of the Lord in flesh and blood. It is Jesus who brings to bear all of the efficacy of these promises. The promises of defense and supply and strength. It is Christ's blood-bought assurance that this mercy and grace to, comes to us in our time of need. That's the stuff that fills our pantries full of the inexhaustible supplies of his good news. This is what he's saying. That if you are like the widow woman of Zarephath, there is a Christ who promises a true and a better word and more authoritative word, a word of supply and strength and defense. And that word is none other than me, myself. I am the word in bodily form. 
This is what Christ is doing and demonstrating that everything transpires according to the word of Jehovah. There is none else. Isaiah 40 and 44 and all the other chapters of Isaiah you could go to where it talks about there is no other God. There's no one beside him. There is only Yahweh. He alone, he alone is strong and sovereign and good and authoritative. We see this coming to full fruition. And the word of God himself, the manifestation, the appearance, the flesh and blood, skin and bones, the, the, the God you can touch, the God you can see, the God who bleeds. He's the one who assures for you and for me that the strength of God's people is always provided. And the supply of God's children is always sure. And the defense of God's church is always ready. It's Christ. It's him. He's the assurance. He's our steadfastness. He's the one who doesn't give way when everything else in the world does. He's the one that cannot be moved and shaken. Yes, by famine. Yes, by evil. Yes, by depravity that moves upon God's people. He's the one who is undeterred and unmoved and untroubled by it all. Because again, he is the king. The king who is sovereign over all points of history. As we've seen, there is nothing that he will not do, even becoming like us, in order to give us his defense and strength and supply. What a gospel. What good news for you and for me that we have this type of God. A God who descends a king who leaves his throne to come to where his, his poor, pitiful, hungry citizens are. In order to make them whole. In order to fill them. Remember what Jesus says in John 15. I have come that you might have joy. And that your joy might be full. Full to the brim. This is what Jesus does. This is our king of kings. <laughs> So this morning, if you are in one of those seasons, one of those particular hours, where all you can see are the ways in which God is seemingly providing for someone else and not you. They're getting a miracle. They're getting something provided for them, uh, unforeseen. What does uh, Paul tell us, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in who? Christ alone. The king is the one who assures these things for you and for me. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.